Welcome to Today in TO. I'm Danny Stover. To quote a bare naked lady, it's been one week and a lot has happened. So how did we go from here back in December? I'll just tell you something. I go, you, you comment all the time because it's just a fact that I go all around the city to all kinds of events with all kinds of people from every different walk of life, every different community. You know who uh, talks to me about Bill 39? Nobody. They talk to me about housing. They talk to me about community safety. Nobody talks to me about it. Nobody. Nobody. To hear. To work hard and to work together. That's the Toronto way. That's what makes being mayor of the city the best job anyone could ever have. And it's why it breaks my heart to leave. But leaving was the right thing to do, as hard as it might be. The John Tory timeline explained and what you have to look forward to as Toronto officially enters its top era. Plus, what does the future hold for the city's only clothing-optional beach, Hanlon's Point? I don't know. That's why I'm asking you. There's a plan out there that's caused some confusion regarding proposals for the Toronto Islands that raises questions about the city's processes when it comes to making changes to a historic public space, especially one with deep ties to Toronto's LGBTQ community. How can we improve the public consultation process? What's the purpose of a master plan? And at what point is adequate, adequate enough? This is content producer Glenn Bregonier bringing you the first of many bite-sized facts about the history of this great city of Toronto. And we decided we'll start off with the most iconic building in the skyline, the CN Tower which was completed on June 26, 1976. At the time, the CN Tower held the record for being the tallest freestanding structure in the world, but has since slipped to number 10 on that list. When it was first being built, officials were actually pretty worried that people wouldn't be able to handle being carried up over 1,100 feet in 60 seconds in giant glass elevators. In fact, they were so worried that they thought to bring in a psychologist to help them get a handle on it. What did this psychologist suggest? Something as easy as placing black strips on the face and sides of the elevator to reassure passengers that there was indeed something protecting them from that long fall. Also, did you know its current address is 301 Front Street? But that wasn't the initial address. It was actually supposed to be on 41 John Street. So why did it get changed, you might ask? Well, as one official at the time put it, 41 John Street is hardly an appropriate address befitting the tallest building in the world, so the city changed it. So after 47 years, the iconic tower continues to be an inspiration of many, a focal point of tourism, and a beautiful figure in the Toronto skyline. I leave knowing absolutely confident that our city's best days lie ahead. I leave with great hopes, I leave with high spirits, I leave with deep humility, and ever deeper gratitude. Oh, so you agree. Toronto's best days are ahead of us. That, of course, was John Tory officially announcing his resignation after what I would imagine was one of the worst weeks of his life. So, as Deborah Cox would say, how did you get here? Because no, nobody, no, 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 nobody. Nobody. is supposed to be here. 
Did you know John Tory first ran for mayor two decades ago in 2003? He lost to David Miller, but then he was elected as the Ontario PC leader. Tory resigned from that gig in 2009 under way less scandalous conditions and became a talk radio host, that poor sucker. Then in 2014, Tory ran again and won, beating out incumbent mayor Rob Ford's brother, Doug, and Olivia Chow. Tory ran and was reelected in 2018, beating out Jennifer Keysmat, and then he was reelected again this past October of 2022. All in all, Tory's time in the mayor's office has been pretty boring. But after Rob Ford... Yes, I have some smoked crack cocaine. Probably in one of my drunken stupors. It was kind of nice. And then on an otherwise normal Friday evening in February... During the pandemic, I developed a relationship with an employee in my office in a way that did not meet the standards to which I hold myself as mayor and as a family man. The relationship ended by mutual consent earlier this year. He went on to apologize. I'm deeply sorry, and I apologize unreservedly to the people of Toronto and to all of those hurt by my actions, including my staff, my colleagues on city council, and the public service, for whom I have such respect. Most of all, I apologize to my wife, Barb, and to my family, who I've let down more than anyone else. And wow, did not see that coming. And I'm not going to lie. There was a very small part of me that actually felt sad for Tory, but, you know, more his family. People make mistakes. And even with mayoral superpowers, he was unable to dodge this one. And for most of us, this came out of nowhere. But for David Ryder, the City Hall Bureau Chief for the Toronto Star... It sprouted from a seed planted a couple of months prior. The original tip I got was way back in December, which was just that the mayor and his wife were kind of on the road to divorce. And I, you know, we've written about them as a power couple. So it would be like a small story just announcing, you know, a kind of a sad thing. Um, and I reached out to the mayor's office and heard, you know, there's some stuff going on, but we're not ready to talk about it. I didn't have anything to report. So I just kept my ears open and was asking around. It seemed to be an open secret in political circles that they were essentially kind of living separate lives, that uh, they were not the couple they once were. But again, I just kind of waited. And then a couple of weeks ago, we got a, a very credible tip that there was another person involved, that it was a woman, a much younger woman, who had worked in the mayor's office. At that point, it seemed like we had to at least do the due diligence to find out if it was a story, if it was in the public interest to report whatever was going on. Um, some people very close to him said, no, that's crazy. The mayor would never do that. But we got a couple of people who said, yeah, there is some kind of relationship. They didn't know a lot of details. I think the big threshold for us was, was did the relationship happen while she was working for him kind of essentially under his control. I think in the post-Me Too era, a lot of people feel that it is, um, in, you know, improper for um, a powerful person, and nobody in this town is more popular, more powerful or was more powerful than John Tory, uh, to have even a consensual relationship with somebody much junior, uh, much less powerful. So essentially our reporting said that this was true, and then it all led up to a long series of back and forth with the mayor's office that led to his lawyer issuing a statement to us Friday night confirming it and then we published and then he made the decision we didn't call on him resign we just said laid out the facts and he made the decision to, to quit and so Tory said on Friday February 10th that he would resign as the mayor of Toronto only jokes on us he didn't say when 
So with this news dropping less than a week before city budget deliberations, it left some questions over the weekend. And then as the sun dawned on a new week in a post-Tory affair Toronto, the city budget chief Gary Crawford confirmed that John Tory would be present at the midweek meeting and he would get this controversial budget approved if it was literally the last thing he did as mayor. He is committed to ensuring that his budget is passed. With the new legislation as it is, he needs to follow that through, whether it is Wednesday at the end of the meeting or it may have to be a little bit longer. We're just going to have to wait and see. If there are no vetoes, um, the budget is passed and it's done and he has met the obligation that I feel he wants to do. He needs to do. Okay, so Tory will see the budget through. And then? And then we have the brewing race to replace Mayor Tory. And there are all kinds of names coming out of the woodwork and kicking tires. This would be a, a low threshold election. And I, by that, I mean, it wouldn't, you wouldn't have to sacrifice many months of your life and potentially raise $2 million for a by-election like this to become mayor of Toronto. You could do it much quicker and much cheaper. That was David Ryder again. And, you know, we love a low threshold by-election. And one guy whose name is being thrown around is Councillor Josh Matlow. Whenever I hear from people asking me to run for mayor, I, of course, like I want to give everyone a hug. Like, it's what a wonderful compliment. Uh, yeah, compliment, but maybe avoid hugs for now, just until this all blows over. But Matt Lau did go on to say... I can tell you that uh, my, my wife and my daughter and I, along with uh, uh, my team and, and, and supporters, have been having very active conversations all weekend and lots of phone calls and, you know, everything you can imagine, uh, because uh, it's only responsible to, given, given the... Uh, the moment that we've uh, that that we have to meet, uh, even even if we didn't expect that this moment would arrive right now. I found this to be an interesting comment as well regarding a potential bid for the mayor's seat, and it's regarding those powers. If I were to be the mayor, um, one of the first steps that I would take is uh, is uh, both denounce the uh, Bill Thirty Nine, the strong mayor legislation that allows for minority rule decisions, which is anti democratic. And then I would work with uh, the premier of the time, uh, perhaps a new premier uh, uh, after the next provincial election, who would be willing to rescind it. Because uh, Toronto having a democratically elected legislative body that can uh, uh, approve motions with only a third of council's support is the antithesis of democracy. It's fundamentally wrong. And um, I just... I, I, I would want to fight for a strong Toronto rather than a strong mayor. OK, we got a little off track, but back to the budget with Tories stank all over it. Jennifer Keesmat is also someone who could be entering the race. She ran against John Tory in 2018, and she's also the founder of Marquee Developments and the former chief city planner of Toronto. You know, when I was chief planner, we worked on the budget for, for six months leading up to the budget when it got to city council. We were in committee meetings being vetted. We were having meetings with the mayor's office. We were, you know, a fine-tooth comb by finance through our budget. So this is the culmination of a really significant process. And it's my understanding that John Tory has been more intimately involved in creating this budget than any of the previous budgets. That he's really had his hand on the rudder. So I can understand that there's a lot of, uh, pressure and desire on his part to be at the table. But look, it's an awkward situation. As awkward as it is, it might be more awkward if he's not there. 
This budget totals $65.4 billion for City of Toronto services and capital projects. Of course, that includes a nearly $50 million top-up for the Toronto Police Services. And there's also a big ask from the other levels of government to assist with critical programs and infrastructure to the tune of nearly $1 billion. Budget Officer Gary Crawford said the Gardner Expressway is one of the biggest drains on the city, and it would be great if the provincial and federal government could maybe help us out with that. Who's responsible for that? If the province could take it over, that would be great, and that's something we, we need to. But if not, then we do have to you know, maintain the Gardner right now. There's $1.9 billion of work that needs to do just to keep the thing up and to maintain it. Um, and that's kind of where we're at. And we've had this conversation easily eight or nine times over the last 10 years. Uh, each time we come back saying, you know, it's an important part of the infrastructure of the city. As much as we don't feel we should be paying for it, we need to figure out how we keep it. But something Gary Crawford said there really stuck out to me. He said, we've had the same conversation for the past eight or nine years. And uh, Gary, the one, how long has Tory been in office again? Mm-hmm. And still... No additional monies for a giant chunk of aging infrastructure. Which brings us to Wednesday, Budget Day, Tory's last hurrah. And it started out like this. Now we will continue with the council meeting. Mayor Tory, you were going to make a presentation. All right, I, I did warn the public that if there's any further disruption, then the rest of the day was fairly chaotic. People are mad, and for good reason. The police budget has gone up roughly 1.7% on average for the past eight years. And a motion tabled by Councillor Alejandro Bravo to divert just $900,000 of that $48.3 million to fund maybe a respite center was shot down by 17 councillors. Seriously, sometimes the city is so embarrassing. Ben Spur with the Toronto Star has more on that. We thought that there might be some, you know, big pushes to, for instance, yeah, dra- dramatically reduce the police budget or, or rethink the Gardner Expressway uh, reconstruction, that kind of thing. But in, in, at the end of the day, it was a pretty straightforward budget. But going into the meeting, um, the mayor, before all this uh, scandal happened, was uh, had revealed that, you know, the city staff had found about $6 million out of the $16 billion budget and reallocate the things that they wanted. Uh, that number grew to about $7 million. And they added some things like, uh, keeping warming centers open, uh, or at least one warming center open around the clock until the middle of April, um, adding things like uh, mental health uh, outreach workers on the TTC. So kind of minor things that uh, I think were um, meant to, you know, appease critics who were saying that uh, this budget doesn't go far enough in terms of supports for the homeless and, and um, that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, no no major changes. And if there had been major changes, the, the mayor could have then vetoed them when yeah. that would have drawn up the process and all that kind of thing. But none of that happened. So after the $16.2 billion budget was approved late last Wednesday night, John Tory released his resignation letter, marking the end of an era in a very strange way. And now we look ahead to what's next. Here's City Councilor Brad Bradford. He's also the chair of the Housing Committee. And Brad laid out the timeline for the upcoming by-election. So my understanding is a report's going to come to our next council meeting on March 29th. That is our opportunity to formally declare the office of mayor vacant. 
and pass a bylaw that triggers the election. Um, there will be a nominations that open the next business day following that council decision. Um, they should be open for either 30 or 60 days. And then the by-election would be 45 days after. So I think we're looking at somewhere around mid-June or mid-July for the election. Um, it's not a long time. That is definitely a sprint. But I think Torontonians will tune into this because, again, as I said, there's just so much at stake. So many issues top of mind, and this is an opportunity for a reset. It's an opportunity for generational change and a new chapter in Toronto. It should also come as no surprise that Bradford's name has come up several times when talking about Toronto's next mayor. There was a piece in the Star that kind of positioned him as a conservative pick that Premier Ford was into, even though Doug Ford did say this regarding Toronto's next mayor. If a lefty mayor gets in there, God help the people of Toronto. We saw it before when Rob was there. Taxes going through the roof, you know, out of control spending, worrying about, you know, lining the pockets of city halls, coffers. We have a different philosophy. Our philosophy is put money back into the taxpayers' pockets, reinvest into companies, and that's how you have a thriving economy. But folks, I'll tell you, if uh, a left-wing mayor gets in there, we're, we're toast. I'll tell you, it'd be a disaster in my opinion. Abuh? Toronto is a disaster right now. Taxes going through the roof? Well, with the budget that passed, property tax rates for 2023 have been set. Residential households are paying a combined 7% increase, the highest since amalgamation. And please tell me more about what you saw when Rob was there. Lefty mayor, get out of here. How about an unproblematic mayor who doesn't vote against keeping warming centers open? That's all I ask. And speaking of lefty mayors, remember former Mayor John Sewell? Maybe not. He won back in 78 with less than 50% of the vote as the right-wing vote was split. And Sewell served as mayor until 1980, and at that time, he was considered a radical. He wore blue jeans to council meetings. He rode his bike into work. He opposed the development of banking and convention centers in the Central Business District. He was a critic of the Toronto police. He demanded greater accountability to the public. And he was a defender of gay rights. And something tells me he's not a fan of John Tory or his ability to get any additional funding. We've always had this problem. Um, you know, he's not a very good negotiator. So getting rid of him doesn't cause any great problems in respect to that one and a half billion dollars. Could somebody else get it? Yeah, it depends how they want to do it. They could never do it alone. One of the things about John Tory is he always said, let me just go and do it by myself. Well, if he could do it himself, I don't think we'd be in this mess. And now you've arrived at Friday, one week after Tory's surprise presser. Jennifer McKelvey steps into her role as deputy mayor, not acting, not interim, deputy. And here's a bit of what she said on Friday. Residents can rest assured that my entire focus at this time is ensuring a smooth transition and continued good governance. And look, here's where the tears would be if she could cry. Um, yes, I, I think I am a little emotional. I have a lot of respect for Mayor Tory. He's the man that I admire a lot. I admire his sense of duty, his sense of honor. I admire how he's taken full responsibility and how he's he's resigned. I think he used his heart and he looked to what was best for him, what was best for his family, and what was best for the city of Toronto. And I think that's admirable. Huh. And now... 
I'm reminded of the words of one wise punk. Make the best of this test and don't ask why. It's not a question, but a lesson learned in time. It's something unpredictable, but in the end, it's right. I hope you had the time of your life. So with that, goodbye, John Tory. Congratulations on a job done. You were mayor. You worked hard. You played hard. You fell hard. To work hard and to work together. That's the Toronto way. That's what makes being mayor of the city the best job anyone could ever have. And it's why it breaks my heart to leave. But leaving was the right thing to do, as hard as it might be. Sugar Beach may just be that perfect little retreat right in the core of the city to many, but it also has a rich history in the Toronto waterfront. Like, why is it called Sugar Beach? And what used to exist there before? Well, let's start with the why. It was created back in 2010 and built right across from the Red Path Sugar Refinery at the intersection of Lower Jarvis and Queen's Quay. So considering the location, the name basically chose itself. But what used to be there before the beach was built? Well, surprisingly, on just the other side of the street was one of the largest clubs in the world at the time, the Government Nightclub, which officially closed its doors on January 25th, 2015, and was demolished just a month after. But what else shares this beautiful city beachfront? Why, the Chorus Entertainment Building, of course, where shows and podcasts just like this are put together for your enjoyment. Now, Sugar Beach is a beautiful, accessible, and free public beach that is loved, shared, and enjoyed by all. Did you know that Hanlon's Point became a hotspot for Toronto's gay community beginning in the 1950s? In fact, Toronto's first gay pride celebration was held on the beach in 1971. In 1999, City Council approved a one-year pilot project for a clothing-optional beach at Hanlon's Point. In 2000, it was extended, and in 2002, it was finally made permanent. To this day, Hanlon's is a popular gathering place for the LGBTQ community and sees about 1.5 million visitors a year. So it's a pretty important, not to mention fun, cultural space. And right now, there's a proposal to create, among other things an open-air event space on the lawn close to the beach for hosting festivals and cultural events. Now, it is just a proposal, but some feel that this could impact the safety of the community who frequents Hanlon's Point Beach. And any plans moving forward should better engage the public, especially when it comes to dedicated space utilized historically by the queer community. This prompted a public response from my next guest, Daniel Fusca. He is the manager of public consultation for Toronto Parks, Forestry and Recreation, and he's behind the proposals and master plan, not just for Hanlon's, but for all of the Toronto Islands. And his response, a lengthy Twitter thread, kind of pulled back the curtain on the city's process for this sort of thing. And it was also really honest about where the disconnect came from and what they will do to repair some of those relationships. And so I thought you might want to look at what's at stake here, what is being proposed, but also the actual meaning of a master plan. And when it comes to adequate public consultations, what are best practices? How do you engage people when it comes to decisions about the future of some of our city's most coveted spaces? 
Daniel Fusca with the city joined me for the pod. So first, I wanted to know what prompted all of this? Well, I think what prompted it ultimately was the fact that we, um, as a project team, uh, neglected to host uh, like a, an open public uh, consultation meeting related specifically to Hanlon's. Um, so I guess, you know, that's what was behind it ultimately. Um, but the thing that directly led to this, the event that directly led to this happening was an open house that we held on November 30th to share the draft contents of the master plan. Um, it was held downtown and um, a group of Hanlon's users attended the open house and took issue with the what they perceived as being a lack of uh, consultation with the Hanlon's community and with some of the proposals in the master plan and specifically this proposal for a formalized event space on Hanlon's, not on the beach, uh, to clarify, but on the on the lawn closer to the um, the ferry landing. So at that time, the group asked for further consultation, uh, and they asked for some engagement summaries that have not yet been published to to be published. So we um, we did that, and we planned a meeting for Hanlon specific to Hanlon's point uh, for the twenty seventh of February. Uh, and in the meantime, they launched this uh, hands-off Hanlon's campaign. So when it comes to this robust master plan, what's on it? What's exciting and who was engaged? There's a, We've worked a lot with First Nations and Indigenous communities to try and uh, reveal the indigeneity of the island and the Indigenous history and stories of the island. Um, the, the plan proposes improved uh, access to the island. It, you know, it, it proposes... Um, uh, a new new programming uh, for the island. It proposes making the island a, 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 a 365-day-a-year destination. <clears throat> and it proposes some things related to Hanlon's, um, better uh, heritage interpretation of the important history of Hanlon's as uh, a, a, a safe space for the queer community, a premier queer destination in Canada, and one of the first clothing optional beaches in Canada as well, if not the first. Um, and it proposes um, expanding the clothing optional area, which is something that we heard a lot about in particular because the erosion that's that's impacted the island has really impacted that section of the beach over the last five years. And so we heard that we should be expanding the clothing optional designation. And specifically, this proposal for a uh, formalized event space on Hanlon's. So what the proposal really is, is to take the space that is already used at Hanlon's for events like Electric Island, which has happened in the past and which is happening again this summer, um, and to formalize it by adding some infrastructure to make it easier and cheaper to host events, which would allow for a wider range of events to happen uh, at that location. Because right now what happens is if an event organizer wants to host an event on the island, they have to bring all the supporting infrastructure over to the island themselves. So that includes generators, porta potties, everything you need to host a large event. And what we were told was if we want event organizers to be able to host smaller events, more mid-sized events that are less than the 5,000 person electric island type of event, they require that infrastructure to make it economical. 
And we heard this from different stakeholders, including Pride Toronto and the 519, that there was interest in hosting even queer focused events on the island, but that that's not currently possible given the infrastructure that exists. And so the proposal is to build that infrastructure, a power source at a minimum, but the island master plan, the demonstration plan, uh, which is just a, a visualization of the idea. It's not like a representation of the idea. It's not meant to be um, a final plan because um, it would still need to, to be designed and go through a design process. Um, but it also uh, illustrates a sort of a naturalized amphitheater with a sloped lawn and, and pathways and trees and shrubs that potentially could shape the space a bit um, and give it some definition. So all of that, as I said in my tweet thread, is open for discussion. We could leave the space as an informal event space, but we really want the community to understand what the implications of that are. Um, in terms of the kinds of events that will happen at Hanlon's um, and continue to happen at Hanlon's, uh, if that is the case. And we want the community to, to help us think through if there are any ways that it can support an event space at Hanlon's, um, you know, by applying guardrails or conditions to the kinds of events that could happen there. Um, that's the kind of conversation we want to have with the community. I don't want to generalize a group, and I know there are probably lots of needs and voices um, who are reaching out about this, but I wonder if the nub of this is that if an event space was erected near Hanlon's Point Beach, uh, would that impact people's safety? And is that one of the main concerns? Yeah, I think it is about safety. And look, I'm a Hanlon's user. I'm a huge fan of Hanlon's. I'm, I'm there almost every weekend of the summer. Summer for me is Hanlon's. And, and so... I'm really sympathetic to the concerns that this community is sharing. I mean, look, people have been, queer, the queer community is often um, subjected to harassment and, and homophobia. It's happened to me in our public parks. And nobody wants to create a situation where anyone feels unsafe or is unsafe. There are different stakeholders and different perspectives. It might be my own privilege and my own blinders that I didn't recognize um, the potential issues with this proposal in the first place. But I do think it's it's uh, a real concern. Uh, I don't necessarily ag agree that the way to solve the concern is by keeping the space informal. Um, I Like I said, I think that there are conditions and guardrails that we could put in place. Um, that could help mitigate some of these concerns. This could be a queer focused space. It could be a space that is dedicated to queer events and, and, and queer community. Um, it could require, we could require event organizers to have gender and sex-based violence uh, safety, safety plans uh, for events. There's so many different um, things that could happen. And I think that a conversation uh, is, is required to sort it all out. There has been misinformation, I think, um, or misunderstandings around the, the exact nature of the proposal, that this will be a Budweiser stage or a replacement for the Budweiser stage is absolutely incorrect and was never at all contemplated. And at what point is public consultation adequate enough? And if people are telling you it's not enough, what then? It's hard um, because you will always have people who will say, oh, we weren't adequately engaged. We didn't hear about this. 
And look, this an engagement process isn't an election and even elections, you know, you will, you will hear people who will say, oh, I didn't know there was an election going on, right? So it's really hard to communicate to people that something is happening and make sure that everybody knows. Um, I think that we did do a pretty good job of it. We had signage on the island. We had signage at the beach. We had social media campaigns that reached millions of people. But, you know, the the spirit of the process was that it should be collaborative and that people should be engaged in the development of the, the, of the ideas and proposals and should help to um, confirm them and, and agree to, you know, the, the way forward. And, you know, I think that the process, despite the fact that we could have and didn't host a meeting earlier with the Hanlon's community, and there are lots of reasons why that didn't happen. I'm not going to go into them or make excuses. Uh, let's just, you know, agree that it didn't happen. But once the concerns were brought to our attention, I think that we acted correctly by um, mobilizing, by trying to be accountable to the community, by hosting the meeting that we were asked to host, and by letting people know that everything is on the table. If there's something that the community ends up telling us, no, we absolutely are not comfortable with this, then there is still time to adjust the master plan uh, before it goes to council uh, sometime later this year. What's the timeline for all of this? This master plan really has a timeline, time horizon of like 25 to 30 years. So what needs to happen after council approves the plan is that there needs to be funding allocated to it. We need to prioritize the actions within it. Um, and then we will need to, as I've said before, um, undertake additional processes to actually figure out the details of all of those different projects that have been identified in the plan. So that includes the event space and any other piece of infrastructure that would be built as a result of the master plan. So that would include another engagement process uh, with multiple phases and opportunities for people to, to shape the outcome. So it really is that we're really, even though we're two years into this process at the beginning of a long journey, um, a master plan is critical in order for change to actually happen because without it, we have no guidelines, no direction. Um, and, 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 you know, improvements can be confused and, and um, not well coordinated. So the master plan is a critical piece uh, to allow the island to change. Uh, over time, but it's also meant to be a light touch. People don't want the island to change drastically. They don't want to see big structures built on the island. And this master plan doesn't propose much of that. It proposes a, a light touch that will really improve um, the existing experience of the island. But it is going to be a long journey and it will take a while. That was Daniel Fusca, manager of public consultation for Toronto Parks, Forestry and Recreation. Hey, thanks for listening. This podcast is brought to you by 640 Toronto and features audio from shows across the network. I'm Danny Stover. Today in TO is produced by me, Glenn Bergonier, and David Spargala. Amanda Capito, Jason Chapman, and Chris Dunner are advisors to the show. Make sure you subscribe, leave a nice five-star review, and I'll see you next week.